Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his new book, The New Political Capitalism, How Businesses and Societies Can Thrive in a Deeply Politicized World, Joe Zamet Lucia examines the gap between the reality of the relationship between politics and business and the lack of familiarity of the business community, even at the most senior levels, with political thinking. And he challenges the idea that business is or can ever be apolitical. Mr. Zamet Lucia is the founder of a management advisory firm with offices in Cambridge, New York, and Tokyo, and the co-founder of the Radix Network of Not-for-Profit policy, Public Policy Think Tanks. His book is published by Bloomsbury Business, and it brings Joe Zamet Lucia to our show now. Welcome. Hello. Nice to be here. Hi. You say that politics and business are inextricably intertwined. I can see how that's true for business, but how does that work on the political end? Well, um, it depends what you, how you define politics. So we have a habit of defining politics as the electoral process and the process by which we do politics. But I like to define politics much more broadly than that, which is that politics is the mechanism by which we somehow collectively decide what kind of society we want to live in. And the, the, the sort of political party... Um, system is simply the process by which we do that. And it's a highly imperfect process, of course. But, but essentially, I define politics as how do we decide what society we want to live in? And how do we move forward in a world that inevitably has multiple conflicting opinions? Can business so, ever be apolitical? Business can never be apolitical because they live in our society. And they have a big impact on the sort of society we live in. Uh, they employ people. They sometimes make people redundant. Uh, they pay people. They, have, they, they lobby. They have an impact on political discourse. Uh, they, are, they don't live in Mars. They live as an integral part of our society and have quite a lot of political power. So they can never be apolitical. Yeah, well, according to Forbes, there are an estimated 735 billionaires in the United States with a collective worth greater than $4.7 trillion. That's up from 424 billionaires in 2012 and 243 a decade before that. Can't that be attributed to a large degree to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that President Trump signed into law in December 2017? Is, is that part of this process? Well, you know, the system of taxation is a political issue, of course, and different parties and different people have different views on that. Um, certainly, the United States has created a lot of wealth in the last several decades. Uh, how that wealth has become distributed uh, depends on the system in which we live. Uh, we all know that currently the system tends to concentrate wealth. But if you take a much longer term view, and there are several, several graphs that, that show this, <clears throat> the amount of wealth inequality in the world has decreased dramatically if you look, for instance, from the beginning of the 20th century. So I think it's always a balance, and there are always numbers that make good headlines. But this is a systemic issue rather than an in, than a you know it's 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 the structure of our capitalist system that ten, has tended in the last few decades to concentrate wealth, 
Um, it's, I don't think we can attribute it to one particular law coming out in one particular time. Well, can we disassociate the, uh, the, the billionaires from the businesses they're involved with? No, of course not. I mean, they made their money through that. And they run, they, some of them still run those businesses. So how they run those businesses makes a difference to the kind of society we live in. Um, what they do, how they employ their people, whether they shift their production overseas, all these things make a difference. Uh, and therefore, they can't be dissociated from the political system. And haven't businesses always lobbied government for their self-interest? Of course they have. Um, and everybody does that. I mean, today we have a very active um, non-for-profit uh, um, civil society community, um, and they lobby for the things they care about, and rightly so. Um, uh, business has always lobbied government for for things that are in their particular interest. The question is how broadly individual businesses um, define their self-interest. You know, do they define it exclusively on how much profit they're going to make this quarter? Or do they define it more broadly, like that we need for commerce to thrive, we need to live in a more or less peaceful society, uh, we need to have an environment where we can breathe fresh air, um, we can't have, you know, climate change um, uh, causing havoc, which will not be good for commerce. So it's a question of how broadly individual businesses decide to define self-interest and over what period of time. But you uh, say that there's a lack of familiarity with political thinking in the business community, even at the most senior levels. In what well, ways? The, well, I'll give you a little um, a little anecdote. So I was having coffee with the chairman of a large uh, multinational company. And uh, he said to me, you know, I've just come from a breakfast meeting with a bunch of other chairs, and we were discussing politics. And we realized, we, we realize, of course, that political thinking is fundamentally different from business thinking. And quite frankly, we don't really understand it or empathize with it. So what I mean by that is exactly that. That, the way, that political way of thinking is very different from the business way of thinking. And business people are brought up, rightly so, in the business way of thinking. Um, so <clears throat> their ability to empathize with and understand the political way of thinking is necessarily something quite different. And you argue that businesses can't afford to be apolitical. They're not. By definition, they're not. They, you know, they live in a society and therefore they are affected and they affect politics, our politics. Um, so, you know, none of us can be apolitical unless we really don't care what kind of society we live in. You say that the relationship between business and politics is like the three-body problem in physics. There's no equilibrium. So how does the relationship between business and politics how has it evolved? Well, it's, it it, there is no equilibrium. It evolves over time. And it's different in different countries that have different cultures. <clears throat> so the relationship between politics and business is very different in the United States. Just to take two you know, quite different extremes, maybe, uh, it's very different in the United States than it is in China, where you know, essentially business is, a, is controlled by the long arm of the state. 
And in between that are various countries, all of which have a different form of relationship based on their history and culture. So it's different in France from what it is in Germany, from what it is in the United Kingdom, from what it is in Japan, from what it is in Korea. So, so and as times change, then the nature of that relationship also changes. And again, I, I want to stress that I don't want to define politics exclusively in terms of government, because there are very many political actors uh, in our societies. There are NGOs, there are, you know, normal citizens like you and me. Uh, there are, you know, all sorts of people and all sorts of groups and institutions that comprise the political system. It's not just government or political parties. You didn't mention Russia when you went through that list of countries, but right, right now, aren't the oligarchs who are seen as uh, being really tied to Vladimir Putin being punished by Western countries because of that relationship? They are, and Russia has an oligarchic system of, of, of if you want to call it politics, and we can debate that, um, but they have an oligarchic system of politics where closeness to the government is an important part of doing business and you get rewarded for it. Now, that's a system that's very different from what we have in the democratic West. Uh, Russia has, um, you know, as we know, Russia has invaded Ukraine. There have been sanctions against Russia. And if you have an oligarchic system like that, where these oligarchs are very, very much interlinked with the Russian government and the Russian political system, then they're being affected by sanctions. And that is a choice that Western governments have made. To the point where one of the most uh, important soccer teams in the world has been taken away from a Russian oligarch. Indeed, and now has found another buyer, and they're doing very well. But what happens to the oligarch? He just uh, doesn't get any of that money? No, he didn't get any of that money. That was part of the deal. Um, the money, any monies that were due to him by his choice, I hasten to add, um, uh, any money that was due to him uh, has gone to various charities. Um, whether he, what would have happened if he hadn't make that, made that choice, I don't know, but that's kind of irrelevant and hypothetical. Uh, but basically, he said very clearly that he, he wasn't going to take any of that money and that it would go to charities. And many Western countries who had, who did business in Russia have uh, pulled out, the latest being McDonald's. Yes. Um, is that, know, is it, that a, isn't that a political decision? Of course it is. It's a, it's, it's a consequence of the geopolitical tensions. Um, so just like some companies have decided not to import cotton from Xinjiang in China because of the slave labor there and because of the suppression of the uh, Muslim uh, Uyghur majority, um, these decisions are driven by the geopolitical and the local political climate in which you live. So there are things that, you know, in a certain political environment, businesses just don't want to do. You point out that politics, which is the visible reflection of social values and cultural trends, shapes the environment in which business operates. 
Is it fair to say that people are becoming increasingly politicized in the sense that they have strong views about how our society should function and the role that businesses should play? Yes, I think we can see that play out almost everywhere. Of course, in the United States, it's um, maybe more marked than everywhere else so far. Um, but I, I think we've seen an increasing polarization and an increasing, an increase in the volume, if you like, with which people defend or put forward their own political position. Uh, what we have lost in that is the fundamentals of politics, which is that we've always had people with different views, but we've also recognized that you know, nonviolent means of resolving those views are preferable and we've also recognized, we also previously recognized and respected that other people have honestly held opposing views to ours. And that the job of politics is to find a way forward, given those opposing and often conflicting views. Um, we've reached, a, we're reaching a stage now where people no longer respect other people's views and are determined to win for themselves at any cost, at any time. And I don't think that's necessarily a good development for, the, for living in a peaceful society. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large show is Joe Zamet-Lucia. That's Z-A-M-M-I-T-L-U-C-I-A. His book, The New Political Capitalism, How Businesses and Societies Can Thrive in a Deeply Politicized World, is published by Bloomsbury. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Don't some people avoid buying from companies whose politics they feel they disagree with, what's being called political consumerism? Yes, that's a, that's a trend. Uh, to an extent, it's been there for a while, but I think we're seeing a slight increase in that, uh, not only in the West. I mean, uh, you know, companies, Western companies operating in China, for instance, are increasingly subject to boycotts if they speak out against the Chinese Communist Party and its policies. Um, so political consumerism is has always been there, maybe it's increased, um, and it's, quest it's a question of whether it will be sustained, because we all make purchasing decisions balancing various factors. Um, so the extent to which we individually make these purchasing decisions based on political criteria varies. Some people who have strong belief systems will act on them. Uh, I mean, some, ha ha some have argued that consumers becoming disillusioned with the political system take to the marketplace to express their political views. Um, so yes, that, that, that is there. Boycotts or boycotts where people support particular companies because of their political views have always been part of the mix and it waxes and wanes. Um, and it's different for different individuals. And sometimes it lasts for a long time. Some people still refuse to buy any Ford motor products because of Henry Ford's friendly relationship with Adolf Hitler in the 1930s. 
Indeed, sometimes it does last a long time. Um, but in general, I think if you take the population at large, we, for better or for worse, we all tend to have relatively short memories. Um, so, you know, these things do wane after a while. Um, and, you know, indeed, some people may, I wasn't aware of that, but some people may still refuse to buy Ford, motor, Ford, Ford cars, but Ford is still thriving. Don't many investors consider a corporation's political positions, such as uh, their positions on the environment or on society in general? Yes, and I think that's part of the change, the recent change that I've outlined in my book. Um, you know, it's not that long ago where the investor perspective was singular. You know, how much money can you make me for my investment? Uh, and uh, I think we've seen over the last 10 or 20 years that that has started to change because uh, investment now is, or investment decisions are quite concentrated in large institutions. And these institutions are themselves coming under pressure from various groups to make their investment decisions based on broader criteria than short-term returns. So they're responding to that. That's part of what I call the increasingly politicized environment. And how are companies responding to a more politically engaged public, both well, the buyers and the investors? Yes. Well, you know, a business is not monolithic and uh, it's made up of a bunch of different companies and different corporations and, and companies of various sizes and each will find their own way of responding. Um, there isn't a right answer. And it depends also on what sort of company you are. So some companies take, just to mention a few names, companies like Patagonia or Ben & Jerry's or in Europe, Benetton, they have always had political social activism as part of their brand identity. Um, it's been the basis on which they built their business. So for them, political engagement is really not an option. It's actually part of who they are, of their brand identity. Um, other companies have not been like that, but are now being increasingly pressured to um, take political stances and to be clear about their social, let's call them socio-cultural values. Um, there's a lot of pressure now coming from all sorts of places uh, where companies increasingly can't dodge this. Well, you mentioned Patagonia, which you write a lot about in this book. It was founded as an environmentally conscious business, and that was before environmentalism even became a major political issue. So Indeed. they were ahead of the curve. They were very much ahead of the curve. And it was, you know, it's the character of the founder. He was an outdoorsy uh, character. Um, he loved, uh, the, he had you know, engaged in outdoor sports, particularly rock climbing. And, um, you know, saw, well, not before everybody else, because this was after um, Silent Spring and everything else, 
but earlier than it became fashionable. Let's put it that way. Uh, that that you know there we we were causing a lot of environmental damage, and um, he founded the company on that basis and made it integral to the brand, uh, which means that their customer base is is not just buying their brand because of its functional value. They're buying their brand because they believe in what that brand stands for. Nike engaged in the Black Lives Movement. Would you call that a matter of principle uh, or uh, political uh, interest or or commercial interest? Well, you know, the, the two can be aligned. Um, you know, just like in Patagonia, uh, you know, Nike was praised by many and condemned by many uh, when it when it went into the Black Lives Matter uh, question. You know, it's a bit different from Patagonia in that in that environmental activism is built into the DNA of Patagonia, but you know, the issues around racial discrimination have never been built into the Nike brand. So some people accuse Nike of essentially jumping on a bandwagon because they saw commercial advantage to that. Uh, Others said, well, you know, this was an issue that affected sport and Nike's in sport. So it's perfectly reasonable for them to take a stand on that. You know, I don't want to be judgmental. There are very different, many different views on that. But the reality is that they did go into that. They decided to go into that. They did it quite well, although they did make some missteps, like, for instance, when they tried to take the same campaign to somewhere like Japan, where issues of racial, where racial issues are much, much more sensitive um, and where the Japanese consumer felt it's not for an American company to come and tell me about my racial, about racial issues. So, so, you know, these are difficult issues to navigate and inevitably there are going to be some missteps. But in general, it seems that the Black Lives Matter campaign was a success for Nike. And you mentioned Ben Cohn who's pretty much dropped out of business. Uh, he was a guest on our show not long ago to talk about political matters. Mm-hmm. Sorry, can you, I, I didn't quite get that. Ben. Well, Ben Cohn no longer, as far as I understand it, is even involved in the ice cream company, Ben and Jerry's. Oh, right, he, yes. he, uh, he wrote a book recently on, on political matters and was a guest on our show. Oh, right. Yeah, well, Ben and Jerry's was founded... Um, you know, was founded as an activist company. You know, it was founded on the basis of, of you know, going organic, um, you know, environmental protection, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so again, it has, it has a kind, a, a degree of activism uh, built into its brand identity uh, and a, a, a sense of social purpose that was built into it from the very start to the extent that, you know, speaking to senior Unilever executives, that when they acquired Ben & Jerry's, they felt it was very good for Unilever because they could learn from that attitude and that DNA of Ben & Jerry's that they could then apply to some other parts of their business. 
You point out that past politicians like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan felt that the role of business was to deliver shareholder value. Yes, well, that was the famous, of course, Milton Friedman statement mm-hmm. that the, that business has only one role in society, and that's to that's to make as much profit as it could. That was always simplistic. Um, and and how did that it, change, and, and when? Or it, is it, it evolved. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it evolved. And I think what 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 we saw is that if you look back through the late seventies, eighties, and nineties, um, we all bought that. And the reason we all bought it is that at that time, the kind of window of political ideas was really pretty narrow. Um, We all bought into this idea about shareholder value. Um, Liberal democracy had won. Then we had the sort of fall of the Soviet Union, which convinced us all that we had got it right and everybody else had got it wrong. We believed that China, as it became more capitalist, would democratize. So we all believed the political, the, the span of political debate was really very narrow. The window was very narrow. That's all been blown apart. In my view, it started with 9-11 in 2001. Um, then we got you know, Russia invading Georgia and, and, and Chechnya. Then we got Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, then we got China with President Xi that, that that took it in a different direction of being more authoritarian. On the commercial side, we got the great financial crash, which faced people with the idea that there was something wrong with our system of political economy. So suddenly, the window of political ideas was became much broader, and therefore people became much more politicized. Um, and business is obviously caught up in that because it lives in a real world. Um, you know, the, 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 the idea that business is there only to maximize shareholder value is, is, was never true. I mean, I remember being once in a meeting at a major pharmaceutical company where the research people were presenting their ideas and the commercial person stood up and said, well, this is all fine and dandy, but you guys forget that the reason we're here is to make money. And the president of research and development stood up and said, laddie, we're not here to make money. We're here to make medicines that make people better. And if we can do that well, then we'll make money. So profit is a consequence of doing something useful. It's not the objective of business. Well, you write that pricing of medicines is political. Of course it is. Um, you know, many medicines, first of all, it's highly emotive uh, because it's we're talking about people's health. Uh, in many countries, um, either all or a significant proportion of medicines are paid for out of taxpayers' money, out of, out of government funds. Um, Especially so how in Britain. Much- Sorry, you're in Britain, aren't you? And uh, I am at the moment. Yes. yes, yes. But even in the United States, you know, people have, um, you know, people on Medicare and 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 and, and Medicaid and whatever they 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 you know they are funded by the the state um, and the state programs um, throughout the whole of Europe. That's the case in Canada. That's partly the case. Um, so so you can't get away from the fact that it is political. Besides the fact that it's emotive, you know, when when somebody says, I think I mentioned in the book, um, 
a company that launched a product that was a one-shot gene therapy, um, and they charged two million dollars a shot. Well, there are there are there are. Well, you you got one shot. The an infant got one shot, which was to last a lifetime, but it was still what one and a half million dollars. Yeah, something like that, Um, and you know. We react to that number with sticker shock. Um, it's just a normal human reaction. Now, there are a lot of intellectual and, and technical reasons to support that sort of pricing. As you say, it's one shot that lasts a lifetime. But who um, can, only a few, a, a small percentage of the population can afford it. So the rest have to go to government to help them out? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a different choice. That's a choice of how different countries choose to structure and finance their healthcare. Um, so, you know, in Europe and in the UK, for instance, uh, we choose to say that everybody has access, but we can't give everybody everything. So we choose to ration on the basis of, of peop- everybody gets the same but it's maybe somewhat of a lower quality. In the United States, you choose to ration in a different way, that somebody who can afford it can get more and somebody who can't afford it can get less. But these are public policy choices. They're not business choices. Well, when I was a student in London, I had to get some medical treatment, and the doctor told me that uh, I probably would get better treatment in the United States because medicine was more advanced, and he prescribed some drug. Well, Mm -hmm. then I came back to New York and I paid about 10 times as much for that drug. And the treatment was no better. (laughs) But (laughs) that's a whole other matter. Uh, It is. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Joe Zamet-Lucia. If you signed up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The New Political Capitalism, How Businesses <coughs> excuse me, and Societies Can Thrive in a Deeply Politicized World. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. That's give to the number two WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. And if you do it during today's show, we'll be happy to send you a copy of the book. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much. And we return now to my guest, Joe Zamet-Lucia, who's an entrepreneur, investor, leadership advisor, and commentator, and the author of a new book called The New Political Capitalism, How Businesses and Societies Can Thrive in a Deeply Politicized World. It is published by Bloomsbury. And you mentioned we were talking about medicine. Um, It's become a legal issue in this country in some cases. Someone just was uh, 
sent to jail for jacking up the price of insulin. Yes. Well, you know, it's every every system, you know, people sort of think about what's the best political system. Um, you know, how do we get a perfect system almost? My view is when you choose what system you have, be it in healthcare or anything else, the question you should be asking yourself is, which imperfections are you willing to put up with? Uh, because there is no perfect system. Um, and it is you know, a reality of this world that people will always try to game the system. And thankfully, sometimes they get caught. You say that business is a major force in deciding the sort of society we live in. And so the role of business must be more in tune with political, social, and moral norms of the day. And also that politics shapes the environment in which business and brands operate. And that's become particularly true in the current trend toward social activism. That's right. I mean, this is, um, um, you know, it's, it's, a very, it's a very entwined interaction between our socio-cultural political system and business. And I don't know, I don't think that comes as a surprise to anybody. I mean, if you speak to any marketing person, um, they will tell you that they will make products that appeal to people depending on the local culture. So, you know, 30 years ago, nobody was producing organic foods. Now there's a demand for it, and that's a cultural change. So businesses produce those products. So, so there's nothing new about the idea that business adapts to the prevailing culture. Um, the change that we're seeing is that the political aspect, the socio-political aspect of our culture is evolving and changing at a very rapid rate. Uh, in the past, it changed only rather slowly and businesses could adapt to that. Um, and businesses were used to other sorts of disruptions. You know, they were used to technological disruptions to which they had to adapt. What we're seeing now is quite a big socio-political disruption, disruption in the sense of very rapid change. So businesses need to adapt to that. And in this country, there's been a, a growing trend toward polarization. How do companies decide what to engage with politically? Does it matter whether the social activism is on the left or the right? Well, that's a, that's a question for individual companies, but I think there are two separate issues here. We get a lot, as, as you've uh, mentioned, companies are increasingly coming under pressure, activist pressure, to take a stand. Now, what the activists mean, of course, is not we want companies to take a stand. What they mean is we want companies to take a stand in support of my particular position. Um, and that's always the activist uh, view. Uh, so I think there's a big question about, for business in, in, uh, in the United States with the political polarization. Do they see their role as jumping onto one side or another of any particular debate, which to an extent increases political polarization? Or do they see their role as being more political, if I can put it that way, which is to say 
we understand that among my various stakeholders, be they employees, investors, whoever else, there are various views on this point. Um, and we respect all those views, but the implications of what's going on in terms of how I choose to run my business is this way. So different businesses will have to make their own choices. Either they choose to be activist on one side or another, or another of a particular debate, or they can choose to try and lower the temperature and try and help maybe have a role in dampening down this loud polarization that we're seeing in the United States. Well, isn't that exacerbated by the fact that we see different political ideologies in all across the different states of the United States. Uh, the laws in each state uh, would limit certain business activities while encouraging other ones. That's always the case. Um, it's I mean, been the case in this country all along, but to these days it feels like it's pretty much become the norm. It Yes, maybe. I mean, you, you have a federal system, uh, which has its advantage, again, which imperfections do you want? Uh, you have a federal system that has its advantages uh, and its disadvantages. Germany, too, has a federal system that has its advantages and disadvantages. In the United Kingdom, we complain that everything is far too centralized. Um, and we're asking people to delegate power. But, so, but, yeah. in, in the, but now you have a situation where Northern Ireland is thinking of leaving the UK because of political issues. Yes, Scotland is thinking of leaving the UK. Um, Scotland as well, want... but, I, but the Northern, I, as I understand it, Northern Ireland is thinking of, of merging with the Republic of Ireland uh, even because of Brexit. Well, Northern Ireland has always had two communities, um, which is the, the, the nationalist Republican community that's always wanted to uh, leave the United Kingdom and become part of, of, of the island of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. And it has a unionist community that is very loyal to the United Kingdom. And the relationships between those communities have always been very fraught. I mean, to the extent that you know that, that Northern Ireland suffered from, you know, many, many decades of terrorism, uh, you know, because of the fight between these communities. Thankfully, uh, that was somewhat, you know, nearly totally put to bed following the Good Friday Agreement. Um, and in, in Northern Ireland, it's a question of identity. You know, some people have a British identity, a United Kingdom identity, and feel it very strongly. Others have an Irish identity. Um, before Brexit, uh, that could all be smoothed over because, to an extent, as part of the single market, Northern Ireland could be part both of uh, the island of Ireland and the United Kingdom. So, so those identity tensions were smoothed. Now that Brexit happened, they're flaring up again. I mean, thankfully, not to the extent that we have had a revival of terrorism, but certainly to the extent that we've had um, a, a resurgence of the political debate. Well, what impact has Brexit had on British businesses? Uh, because it was a political decision, wasn't it? Exactly. That's And that's, I guess, <clears throat> the point of the book. So some... some um, 
you know, some businesses who did that did a lot of business with the rest of Europe uh, have suffered as a result of Brexit. Um, others who are in a different position have gained. Others, like your, you know, corner sandwich shop, um, it doesn't matter very much. So, but but whatever the impact, it shows that political decisions have big impacts on business. Uh, I mean, Brexit was a purely political decision. And there were many businesses that argued against it because it would be against their commercial interests. But the reality is that when it comes down to it, politics and political decisions will always, will always trump commercial considerations. How important is the role of the international supply chain in this discussion? Again, that's something that's being thrown in the air. Um, you know, through again, when we go back to the 80s and 90s, the idea of hyper-globalization, the idea that you made things in the cheapest possible place, the idea of just-in-time delivery, the idea of these scattered international supply chains, which were highly efficient, all that we felt was great. Well, now the world has changed. China has changed. Russia has invaded Ukraine. Um, the price of, of transport has changed. You know, technology has changed. We can now manufacture things much closer to home at lower cost. So the geopolitical, the geopolitical picture has changed dramatically. And therefore, our understanding and uh, the way we view the relative advantages and disadvantages of widely scattered uh, global supply chains will change accordingly. Now, over what period and in what way remains to be explored. But as geopolitics has changed, so will supply chains. You're listening to Let It Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Joe Zamet Lucia. His book, The New Political Capitalism, How Businesses and Societies Can Thrive in a Deeply Politicized World, is published by Bloomsbury. The word capitalism is in your title, and you offer an interesting definition. Yes, I tried to take, you know, what is capitalism is, has been the subject of, of you know, much discussion and, you know, miles and miles of published papers. So, you know, I just chose to take a very, very simple minimalist view of capitalism, which is a system that allows individuals to accumulate private capital in one form or another, be they owning their own house, be that having capital in the bank or whatever it is, um, as opposed to communism, where everything is owned by the state and nobody has private capital or private ownership. So I've taken this very minimalist view because I didn't want to get into that discussion of what exactly is capitalism. And you say uh, that there's no country in the world today that isn't capitalist in one way or another ever since the fall of communism, even North Korea? Well, probably North Korea, I think, is the exception. Although from my understanding, and I don't know anything about North Korea, but from my understanding, even there, they are experimenting with some kind of private ownership and private business. Um, but I don't know enough about it to comment. 
Has the concept of capitalism changed over the years? We no longer hear the phrase laissez-faire capitalism, for example. Right. Well, capitalism, the reason capitalism has been so successful is because of its ability to adapt to the times. It's a, it's a very adaptable system. So, you know, in feudal times, we had feudal capitalism where, where all the capital was held by a few, the, you know, the barons and, and the aristocracy. We then moved on to mercantile capitalism, uh, which was based on on trying to export more than you import. We then moved on to industrial capitalism during the Industrial Revolution, where we could accumulate capital in order to fund industrial development. Uh, we then moved on to consumer capitalism in the post-Second World War years, where consumption became everything. Um, and then we moved on to financialized capitalism, where, you know, where a lot of the activity in an economy became, became executed through the financial system as opposed to the industrial system. And my argument is that the next iteration that we're moving towards now is what I call political capitalism, where it is the socio-cultural political, political environment in which we live that will determine how the capitalist system works. Um, and, you know, just as capitalism has been successful because it's adapted, so the businesses that will be successful and that will thrive in as, as this system evolves over time will be the ones that are capable of adapting at the right speed and at the right time. And those that will fade are the ones who, who refuse to see change or refuse to change with it. Does the concept vary from country to country? Is it different in Switzerland or Sweden or the United States or Ukraine, for that matter? Or Yes. I mean, you mentioned earlier the uh, Russian system of oligarchic capitalism. Um, you know, we know that China has a system, uh, a capitalist system that is, that is increasingly now in, uh, controlled by the state. Um, if you take Germany, well, 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 let's back up to China because yes. China then allowed businesses to develop, and then decided that it was getting out of control and it had to take over again. Yes, yeah, so China, China, you know, experimented with Western-style uh, capitalism over time and was progressing in a certain direction, um, and then. Uh, President Xi took power and he took a very different view. So he has chosen to move China back to much more centralized control and much more centralized control of business and was, has been, has shown himself to be suspicious of power um, being in the hands of, you know, very successful business people. So he's cranked down on that. So his political philosophy is very much, uh, has, has very much moved towards increasing central control. And you can see that everywhere. What about the third world countries of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, who all had to contend with colonialism at one point 
or another in their in their histories. Yes. So they have, you know, evolved in different ways. Um, there's no one model. Um, you know, some of them have uh, developed, you know, and are developing um, Western style, if you like, democratic structures and institutions. It's something that takes a lot of time. Um, it's something that's very difficult to build. Uh, they, a lot of those countries uh, have a tribal history. So getting that to work together is, is challenging. You know, others, as we know, sort of became dictatorships. Um, others are still today failed states. So they've all evolved in different ways and at a different pace, um, depending on local circumstances and, you know, who managed to get the power in, 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 in that way. So in, in, in that place, um, I think, you know, we all today condemn colonialism and, and it's, it's had its, its, its terrible uh, aspects. Um, it's also instituted in some places, it's instituted um, institutions that have helped these countries develop once they became independent. Um, so if you take somewhere like India, which is a, a, a fascinating country of a billion people, uh, multi-ethnic, um, multicultural, um, but it's the world's largest democracy and has a pretty well-functioning democracy. Although uh, there are complaints that uh, uh, of religious discrimination from Modi, so yes, it gets complicated. Are. You're on the advisory board of the Singapore Forum for Long-Term Investors and Business Leaders. Uh, what's this? We don't have a lot of time left, but I was just curious about what sorts of things <laughs> you deal with there. Well, it's a it's a forum for um, advising or, or creating a, a, creating a, a, a forum for discussion for essentially pension funds and how they invest their money. Uh, <clears throat> and as with, as with all these things, pension funds have a complicated set of objectives because their time horizon, uh, to give us all our pensions and on retirement, their time horizon is a very long one. Uh, so they have to plan for the long term. But on the other hand, you can't just hope that it'll be okay in 20, 50 years time. You also have to make sure that your returns are looking good in the short term. So how to balance those two things and how to cope and deal with these new political pressures where people are saying you can't invest in oil companies and yet oil companies are actually giving you a very good return. You know, all these difficult investment issues that, uh, that, that long-term investors have to deal with, uh, those are the sorts of issues that we try to help them address. You also are a, one of the founders of Radix, a, a not-for-profit mm -hmm. public policy think tank that's based in London, and also the, the Radix Center for Business, Politics, and Society that's based in Amsterdam. Uh, mm -hmm. A non-profit Yes, it's a non-profit. It's a public policy think tank, and it's uh, deliberately non-partisan. 
So a lot of think tanks are, you know, linked with one particular political ideology. Uh, we try to break from that and say that everybody from all parties or none is welcome and that we value the different perspectives that everybody brings and we can see and, and let's see what emerges out of the energy that's created by different opinions. So we try to encourage civil discussion um, across different political ideologies and different political groups. And I have to leave it there, unfortunately. Sure. But I thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a fascinating conversation. Joe Zamet Lucia, his book, The New Political Capitalism, How Businesses and Societies Can Thrive in a Deeply Politicized World. It's published by Bloomsbury Business. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to help this keep the show uh, coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's give in the number 2 WBAI.org. Please do it right now because we need your help to to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large will be uh, can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The New Political Capitalism, How Businesses and Societies Can Thrive in a Deeply Politicized World by Joe Zambit-Lucia. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. You also might consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, and we will say thanks to anyone who uh, signs up to be a BAI buddy for $15 or more uh, a month with a WBAI tote bag. Either way, uh, we hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies, is the only New York station that uh, is uh, 100% listener-sponsored. We hope you'll uh, keep it alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support and hope that you can join us tomorrow when my guests Ran Abramitsky and Leah Bustan will discuss their new book, Streets of Gold. We'll see you then.